Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The White House insists that there is no indication extraterrestrials are affiliated with these flying objects. For now. The lead starts right now. Four times in eight days, flying objects shot down over North American skies by the U.S. military. Were they a security threat? What did they carry? And why different protocols now for shooting them down than for the Chinese spy balloon? Plus, a father's pain after his 14-year-old daughter is bullied and beaten at school and later died by suicide. Why he says her school did not do nearly enough. And the thrill of victory in the face of my beloved Eagles' agony of defeat. Two-time Super Bowl MVP Patrick Mahomes will join us live, fresh off his incredible come-from-behind Super Bowl victory. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start with our world lead. So many questions and, and so few answers from the Biden administration today after the United States shot down Three more unidentified objects over the last few days, bringing the total to four, including that Chinese spy balloon. Moments ago, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, addressed the objects as he prepares to meet with NATO allies in Brussels. We don't know if they were actually collecting intelligence, but because of the route that they took, uh, out of an abundance of caution, we want to make sure that we have the ability to examine what these things are and potentially what they were doing. The National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said today that the United States still does not know what these three objects were or who was behind them or if they had surveillance equipment on board. Kirby says they all needed to be shot down because at the height they were flying, they all posed a risk to commercial aircraft. The White House blames the lack of details that they've been able to share with the public on the fact that the U.S. has not yet been able to recover the debris from any of these three objects, one that was shot down over Lake Huron yesterday, one over northern Canada Saturday, and then, of course, that third in Alaskan airspace airspace on Friday afternoon. Bad weather and remote locations have complicated the recovery efforts. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Oren, so many outstanding questions. So what do we know about these three objects that have not yet been identified? And unfortunately, Jake, as you point out, we're still in the far more questions than answers stage of this specifically because they shot these down fairly quickly once they entered U.S. airspace. They were only monitored for a short time before they were shot down, which means they haven't been able to get a better grip on what these are. They're still calling them objects. And because of the remote locations and because of the weather, they haven't recovered them yet. But here's what we know so far, according to multiple U.S. officials who've been briefed on what we know so far, essentially, at this point. That first object, the one that was shot down on Friday, that is the first of these most recent three, was a metallic object at 40,000 feet, and when it was shot down and fell from 40,000 feet down to the sea ice below, it broke up into several pieces, suggesting it may have had a structure to it or may have had a more rigid body. Unfortunately, at this point, we don't know more than that. 
24 hours later, the second object, the one that was shot down over Yukon, according to U.S. officials, that was a balloon carrying some sort of metal payload, once again at 40,000 feet. But that's on the remote Yukon territory, so that too hasn't been recovered. And then to the object shot down on Sunday that was tracked perhaps from Wisconsin or Montana, over Lake Huron where it was shot down, that was much lower at 20,000 feet. That was described as an octagonal object, a small object. All three of these far smaller than the earlier Chinese surveillance balloon. At this point, that's all we know as we made for more answers on what this was. It is worth noting, Jake, that John Kirby from the National Security Council says, from what they know, they have not observed any maneuverability, any propulsion, or any surveillance technology so far. Where did the recovery efforts stand overall for the debris? They have, and this is going back to the original Chinese surveillance balloon, recovered quite a bit of that. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin described it as a fair amount, and Kirby said that some structure and some electronics had been recovered. As for the more recent three, that shot down on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They're still trying to get to those, perhaps locate them in some cases, and bring that back in for analysis. Jake? Oren Lieberman, thanks so much. The top Senate Democrat says U.S. intelligence agencies are getting new evidence every hour about the suspected Chinese spy balloon, but the Chinese government is now pushing back. They claim the United States illegally flew high-altitude balloons into China's airspace. They said the U.S. did this more than 10 times last year. It's an accusation that the Biden administration is forcefully denying. Not true. Not doing it. Just absolutely not true. So the U.S., let me just push you a little further then. So the U.S. is not using these balloons technologies at all over China? That is right. We are not flying balloons uh, over China. That is absolutely true. Selena and Selena Wang is in Beijing for us. And Selena, this disagreement might be really actually a semantic one because the United States and the Chinese government have quite different definitions of Chinese airspace. Well, Jake, according to the U.S. side, the answer is no. White House National Security Council from the National Security Council, John Kirby, was asked this question during the White House briefing that being cognizant China has a different definition of what their territory is. Is there any surveillance aircraft over Taiwan or the South China Sea that could fit into that? Kirby's response was there is no U.S. surveillance aircraft in Chinese airspace. So, Jake, what we're seeing is China present a completely different narrative and alternate set of facts that the U.S. flat out rejects. In addition to doubling down on the claim that the Chinese balloon in U.S. airspace was just a civilian balloon blown off course, China now also turning the tables here in trying to direct attention back to the U.S., Beijing is repeatedly accusing the U.S. of being the world's largest surveillance empire, said it's common for U.S. balloons to illegally enter other countries' airspace. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson accused the U.S. of frequently sending warplanes, warships and planes to carry out close-range reconnaissance against China, which he claimed amounted to a total of 657 times last year and 64 times this January in the South China Sea. Meanwhile, on Sunday, state media said they've spotted their own UFO above waters near the eastern port city of Ruzao and were preparing to shoot it down. Local authorities even told fishermen in the area to stay safe and to help salvage any debris if it falls near their boat. But as of now, we've gotten no further details about the object and it's still unclear if it's been taken down. But Jake, look, I spoke to a defense expert, Drew Thompson in Singapore, who said China's messaging may lack credibility and it's contradictory, but the messaging here is largely directed at the domestic audience. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now, retired Marine Corps General Frank McKenzie. He's the former commander of U.S. Central 
Command. Uh, General, thanks for joining us. So you just heard John Kirby say the U.S. does not fly balloons over Chinese airspace. Um, does, has that always been true, even if one includes Taiwan and the artificial Chinese islands in the South China Sea, or is that really where this disagreement is about? Well, Jake, first of all, thanks for having me this afternoon. I'm, I'm, I'm right with John Kirby on this. That's flat nonsense. Uh, we haven't flown in my long experience any kind of balloon over China. We have other ways to gather intelligence that don't require us to go into Chinese airspace or Chinese territorial waters to do that. And we do that pretty effectively, which really perturbs the Chinese, which is why you have such an electric reaction to the current situation. But if one includes Taiwan as Chinese airspace, which I'm not sure the United States does, or if one includes those artificial islands that China is building in the South China Sea, which I'm not sure the United States does, then can it be said that we fly surveillance balloons over that, those areas? Is, is that, I'm just saying, is that how the Chinese are making this accusation? Uh, you know, the Chinese territorial uh, demands in the South China Sea and off their, off their coast are exorbitant, and they extend very far out, and they are not internationally recognized. Even, even given that, uh, I'm unaware of any balloon flights that we might have executed. We just have other ways to gather that intelligence. Sources tell CNN that the U.S. intelligence community's method for tracking Chinese surveillance balloons was only developed within the last year. So it seems rather concerning that China was apparently doing this for years and years, perhaps even decades, with the U.S. having no clue, right? Jake, that is that is concerning. Uh, I can tell you this as the director of the joint staff from 2017 to 2019, uh, we never reported a Chinese incursion during that period. I don't say they, that they did not occur. I merely say none were reported. And that was in a period of time when if the Russians flew up into what we call our air defense identification zone, we would get routine reporting on that. So we look pretty hard at that. I'm not, uh, I'm not able to give you more information on that, but it is concerning that this may have gone on for a while and has not been detected until now. Do you think President Biden was too slow in shooting down the Chinese spy balloon over a week ago? I think we wanted to be cautious about what it was. I think once you made the determination that it did not pose an imminent threat to aircraft flying in the United States, it was at 66,000 feet, then you could take a very deliberate approach. Having said that, I think we would have all prefer to have shot it down uh, before it entered or as it entered U.S. airspace. And I would guess that was probably what will happen again. But it is important to distinguish between the reaction to the first balloon and these other uh, anomalies that we've identified. All of them were operating in a regime where they posed a reasonable threat to air traffic. So it's a very easy decision to bring them down under those circumstances. Do you suspect that these three other objects were from the Chinese government? Great question, Jake. I don't know. Uh, it takes a lot of resources to put something up at that altitude and to keep it up there for a period of time. Those uh, those things are typically only those resources are typically only available to nation states. Here's one thing: I'm confident we will get to these three inaccessible sites. We'll know what happened, just as we will do a full recovery of what lays off the coast of South Carolina. What other countries are capable of sending surveillance? equipment such as this over the United States. I, obviously, the Chinese government's capable of it. I, I assume Russia is, um, but you tell me, who else? 
Sure. So Russia, China would both be capable. Other countries as well might be capable of it. The technology required is not particularly difficult. But what you have to look at are the prevailing winds. In order to the, the, the uh, a balloon of this nature is not particularly maneuverable. It's not going to go up. It's not going to fight back against the jet stream. So you've got to be in a location where it can be launched. And that sort of takes you to those northern tier states, China being one, uh, Russia being another one. General Frank McKenzie, thanks so much for your expertise. Really appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Jake. I enjoyed being here this afternoon. Ahead, the allegations and arrests now in Turkey one week after that nation's devastating earthquake, plus a former congressman on a mission, how he says anti-Semitism is seeping into mainstream American politics. And in a CNN exclusive, lawyers for Donald Trump try to explain how an envelope marked classified ended up in Donald Trump's bedroom. One week after that devastating earthquake in Turkey and in Syria, more than 36,000 people have been recorded dead. 36,000. Turkey's government blames in part contractors and have started arresting dozens on allegations of shoddy building standards. Meanwhile, there are still stories of hope. Rescuers pulled a 13-year-old alive after seven days trapped under the rubble. CNN's Sarah Seidner is in Audiomon, Turkey for us right now with one woman desperate for answers about her family. (laughs) 38-year-old Kudret Kuchibelar desperately pleads with volunteer rescuers to search for her husband, Badir. He's buried, she says, in their corner apartment, which is somewhere under this rubble. They try to console her, but this mother of twins wants action, not words. There is nobody out there. It's been six days. I'm waiting here with my twins standing in the cold. She says she's been asking anyone who will listen to dig her husband out. But for six days, she says officials kept telling her they needed permission from the government to start on her building. I want my husband back, even if he's not alive. She may have accepted his death, but can't go on without seeing her husband's body removed from this hellscape. My life, my blood, my everything, my best friend in life. He left me with my twins here alone. While she waits for the realities of her husband's death... Here in this area, where you see enormous piles of rubble, these are different buildings, but you can't really distinguish them because there's just so much destruction. There have been signs of life. A child was found here alive after a week in the rubble. (laughs) Nurses comfort the girl, who they think is three or four years old. She's dehydrated and in shock, but alive. This is the moment she was rescued. Her exhausted little body pulled from under the seemingly endless mountains of rubble in Hatay. She was rushed to the makeshift hospital set up in the parking lot of the actual hospital that was evacuated after the earthquake. When she first arrived, as a mother, I felt that she was like my own daughter, this nurse says. She's cracking up the staff. She's talking. When we walked in, the toddler had managed to make the nurses laugh. 
relieved she could talk a bit. What is it that she said that made you all laugh? She made all the nurses laugh. Anne. Mama, Anne. The word that made all the nurses laugh was mama. And I'm hungry. I want to eat something. What did that do to your heart when she said mama? I felt a great pulse in my heart, she says. No one knew her name. And when they asked, she said dada. It turns out this toddler does not speak Turkish. She speaks Arabic. Rescuers later tell us she's Syrian. Now, we have learned that the rescuers there in, in Hatay have not been able to find her parents. Um, they do believe at this point in time that they are probably deceased. So this little girl who went through such a harrowing seven days under the rubble uh, but was pulled out alive may soon come to find out that she is an orphan. And as for Miss Kudret that you saw there, who was wailing, waiting for her husband, hoping even just to find a body, well, we have learned this evening that her husband has been found, but he has been found dead in the rubble. At least now, she'll at least be able to see him for one last time and be able to give him a proper burial, Jake. Sarah Seidner in Audiomon, Turkey, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, CNN goes one-on-one with Team Trump. What lawyers say about material marked classified at the former president's home as investigators close in. In our politics lead, parts of the final report from a Fulton County, Georgia special grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election will be publicly released this Thursday after a judge's ruling. As CNN's Paula Reed reports, the report is a culmination of seven months of work, including interviews with 75 witnesses. As federal investigations into former President Trump intensify, his own lawyers say they've done their part. We have completed our searches. We've given up our full reports to DOJ. Saying they turned over new pages with classified markings to investigators in December and then just last month handed over a laptop and a thumb drive. Those contained copies of the classified materials scanned by a Trump aide who works for a political action committee fundraising for Trump. Why would someone from a PAC have access to classified materials? She was working as an aide to the, uh, to the president, and this is a box that had all of his daily schedules from his time in office. We called up DOJ to let them know. The Trump legal team also turned over what it describes as an empty folder labeled classified evening briefing, which Trump was using for an unusual purpose. It was in the president's bedroom. Uh, He has one of those uh, landline telephones next to his bed, and it has a blue light on it, and it keeps him up at night. So he took the manila folder and he put it over it so that it would keep the light down so he could sleep at night. Mr. President! There's also a similar folder on display at the Trump Tower. Doesn't the use of these folders suggest somewhat of a flippant attitude towards classified materials? Not at all. Not at all. Even the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee criticized the former president, as well as President Biden and former Vice President Pence, 
for their handling of classified materials. We're all just stuck. We don't understand how this could be happening. Special counsel Jack Smith is also collecting information from key witnesses going before the grand jury, including Trump's own attorney, Christina Bob. They were looking for classified documents, evidence of a, a crime. I don't believe there was any down there. And Evan Corcoran, who told the National Archives last summer that Trump had no additional classified material in his possession. Adding to the high-profile witness list is Trump's former national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, and his vice president, Mike Pence. I hope the Justice Department understands the magnitude of the very idea of indicting a former president of the United States. I think that would be terribly divisive. Trump's lawyer told me they will try to block testimony from Pence and other Trump advisors by asserting executive privilege. It's unclear exactly how successful they will be, but that will likely delay the investigation for weeks or even months. Jake. Paul Reed, thanks so much. I want to bring in former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig. Uh, he's the author of the new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Uh, Ellie, thanks for joining us. How does this Fulton County judge go about deciding which parts of the grand jury's work he will publicly release on Thursday. So, Jake, anytime you're talking about releasing grand jury information, that's inherently sensitive. And a judge is really going to have two overarching concerns. Number one, you're not going to want to expose the investigation. You may have information about sensitive witnesses or ongoing investigation techniques. Number two, the judge is not going to want to harm or undermine the rights of the accused, or in this case, the not even accused at this point. By putting information out, you could undermine that person's right to a fair jury trial, and you could undermine the presumption of innocence. The thing I would say here, though, is this is a little unusual because this is what's called a special grand jury. Under Georgia law, the judge has more discretion than usual to disclose information. So I think we should expect to see some broader conclusions, but I don't think we should expect to see a lot of specifics about especially sensitive witnesses. So grand juries are known for not being particularly difficult to get an an indictment from, right? They say any decent prosecutor can get a a ham sandwich indicted. Um, So how does that play in here into releasing all this information? It's not I mean, it's basically just a prosecutorial document of some sort, right? Yeah, it is, Jake. There actually is some truth to that old joke about the ham sandwich. I can tell you from my experience as a prosecutor. It's important that people understand this is not some independent fact-finding body reaching its own conclusions. The grand jury process is by design one-sided. The only people allowed in the grand jury room are the grand jurors, prosecutors, and witnesses. There is no defense lawyer. There's no cross-examination. So whatever we see out of this grand jury on Thursday or whatever parts of it we see, it's important people understand that is largely the prosecution's findings sort of being bounced back at it. Fulton County District Attorney, uh, the the Fulton County District Attorney has previously said that decisions on charges are imminent. Uh, How does the partial release of this grand jury material potentially impact the timetable for charges? Yeah, well, I think it increases the pressure on the DA, Fonnie Willis. When she said imminent, that's not a legal term of art. There's no specific meaning. It means whatever the DA thinks imminent should mean. But I'll tell you this, I would never say that to a judge unless I was talking weeks rather than months. We now know that Trump's legal team turned over more materials with classified markings. They did this in December. They did this last month in January. And we know that some of these documents had been scanned to a thumb drive and to a laptop. How does that impact the potential... Uh, criminal charges or the actual criminal investigation into all this. 
that is a vital new detail in my view as a former prosecutor, because now I know that those documents were not just stuffed in boxes or sort of laying haphazardly around Mar-a-Lago. Now I know that something was done with those documents and I would want to dig in and say, who gave this instruction? Why were they scanned and what was done with them? Because now we're going from a world where these documents are all contained on paper to where they've been digitized. And we all know, I think once something hits the digital realm, it's much easier to disseminate. But the question I'd have as a prosecutor is why? Why were they taken from paper and put onto a computer? And one of Trump's attorneys, you also heard, uh, has confirmed that they handed over an empty classified folder found in Trump's bedroom after receiving a a subpoena. Uh, I want to get your reaction to how Trump's attorney is explaining why it was in Trump's bedroom. Yeah, so, well, hold on, let's play the sound. The president's bedroom. Uh, He has one of those uh, landline telephones next to his bed, and it has a blue light on it, and it keeps him up at night. So he took the manila folder and he put it over it so that it would keep the light down so he could sleep at night. What do you make of that? A a post-it note would probably do the job just as well. Um, Look, I think that's a dubious explanation. However, I think it gives us a little bit of a peek into what a defense could be here, which is they're trying to put out an image that these documents were not taken for any sort of illegal or criminal purpose. Maybe there was sloppiness. Maybe they were thoughtless. Maybe they were being used in silly ways but not criminal ways. But really, my question is, A, what happened to the document that was inside the folder? And B, how do we account for the other 200 plus classified documents that were at Mar-a-Lago? All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up on the lead, I'm going to speak live with Super Bowl champion Patrick Mahomes, fresh off his big win against my beloved Eagles. But first, the big political plans in Israel drawing a groundswell of pushback from the Israeli people. Stay with us. In our world lead, an Israeli mother is calling for peace and for prayers after her, her two young boys, Yaakov and Asher Pali, ages six and eight, were killed in what police are calling a terrorist attack. Police say the suspect was neutralized after he drove his car, apparently deliberately, into a bus stop in Jerusalem Friday. This attack follows weeks of heightened tension between Palestinians and Israelis. Earlier today, Palestinian authorities said an Israeli military raid left one Palestinian man dead and at least 13 others injured. Meanwhile, there is also unrest happening within Israel's own parliament, the Knesset, and it is spilling into the streets of Jerusalem, where tens of thousands of flag-waving Israelis were protesting against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judiciary reform plan that would weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. As CNN's Hadass Gold reports for us now, Israel's president is now warning that the nation is on the brink of constitutional and social collapse. By the tens of thousands, protesters streamed into Jerusalem with drums, flags, signs, chanting and singing songs. One of the largest demonstrations for Jerusalem in years, as these protesters skipped work and school to stand against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government's sweeping judicial reform plans, fundamentally altering the balance of power by allowing Parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority. Now, for weeks, tens of thousands of Israelis have been coming out to the streets of Tel Aviv to protest. But on Monday, on the day these judicial reforms were first formally introduced in the Israeli Parliament, they decided to come here to Jerusalem so that the shouts of the tens of thousands could be heard in the halls of the Parliament. Just because they want a slim majority doesn't mean that the right is with them. Changing the spirit and the life of the country from a democracy to a totalitarian regime 
we don't want to go there. Inside the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, the reform passing its first legislative test in a committee hearing. <laughs> to ferocious protests from opposition lawmakers who jumped over tables yelling shame and disgrace before being forcibly removed by security. Netanyahu accusing opposition leaders of deliberately dragging the country into anarchy, urging them to show responsibility and leadership. The night before, Israeli President Isaac Herzog's plea in a televised address for consensus and a warning. We are at a moment before a confrontation, even a violent confrontation. The powder keg is about to explode, and brothers are about to raise their hands against brothers. Even U.S. President Joe Biden weighing in, saying it's the genius of American and Israeli democracies that were built on strong institutions, on checks and balances, and on an independent judiciary. Perhaps the message received. Monday evening, after the protesters cleared the streets, an announcement from the Minister of Justice, Yariv Levine, that while they weren't going to stop the legislative process, they will meet with opposition leaders to at least start negotiations. Now, now, despite that invitation from the coalition to the opposition leaders to sit down and have a meeting even as soon as tonight, I can tell you that as, 11, as of 11.30 p.m. local, that meeting has not taken place. The Israeli media is reporting that the opposition leaders, like former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, want a freeze to the legislative process before they agree to sit around the table, whereas the coalition members want to have this meeting without any preconditions. So clearly we're not any closer to seeing these people sitting around a table. Jake. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Back in the United States, in our national lead, a new report out today from the American Jewish Committee shows that anti-Semitism, specifically anti-Jewish hate in the U.S., is growing and creeping into all facets of American society. Let's bring in Ted Deutsch, former Florida Democratic congressman and the CEO of the American Jewish Committee, to talk about this report. So, Ted, thanks for joining us. The new State of Anti-Semitism in America report shows that in 2022, 89% of American Jews said that anti-Semitism is a serious problem. That's up from 73% just one year before. There was also a 10-point jump in Jews, American Jews, reporting that they feel less secure about their status in the United States. So your organization has a call to action to combat anti-Semitism. How do you even begin to tackle such a huge, clearly accelerating problem? Well, it starts, thanks for having me, Jake. It starts by acknowledging the moment we're in and the importance of the survey. The, the, the number that really jumps out of the survey is that over 40% of American Jews feel less secure living in America than they did just one year ago. That's a 10% increase from last year. So AJC's call to action against anti-Semitism recognizes that this requires a whole of society approach that ultimately it's, it's not just the Jews who are at risk when anti-Semitism is allowed to fester and that we're all in this together fighting this Jew hatred. So whether it's advocacy before government or advocacy with businesses, interacting with universities, law enforcement, social media, perhaps most importantly, everyone has a role to play here. Most people in the Jewish community saw anti-Semitism online 85% of young people saw anti-Semitism uh, or experienced anti-Semitism online, and people are changing their behavior as a result, mm -hmm. afraid to even show that they're Jewish. Just over a week ago, San Francisco police arrested a man who allegedly had fired a replica gun inside a synagogue. That was just days after a man allegedly threw a Molotov cocktail at a New Jersey synagogue. The, these attacks are not 
infrequent. They're, in fact, alarmingly regular. Um, is there a way for law enforcement, do you think, to better identify and stop attacks such as those before they happen? Well, look, the reporting from the F, the hate crime reporting from the FBI was woefully inadequate. We need to do a better job uh, identifying the challenges that exist. We also have to work together to to confront this. Jake, the what you describe is is happening more and more across the country. And as you know, it's not only those kinds of, of massive threats, but uh, on a regular basis now across America, where I am in New York now, especially visibly identifiable Jews are the subject of, of physical attacks. So there has to be a real focus. We need the resources to help secure the community institutions. We need the, the resources, as you point out, in law enforcement to make sure that these cases are being investigated, are being prosecuted, being, people are being held accountable. There is too much at risk for the community and, again, for the country at large if we just allow this to fester. And social media companies have a huge role to play here as well. Another finding from the report shows that more than a third of U.S. adults have personally witnessed anti-Semitic harassment or physical attacks in the past year. But very few of them reported those incidents. Only 7% reported the incidents to the police. 4% reported them to a Jewish organization. 3% to a social media platform. 5% to another authority or platform. Um, why do you think that is? is it, are Jews afraid of being perceived as, as complaining? I mean, what, what, what could possibly be behind that? Yeah, look, there's a, there is a normalizing of, of anti-Semitism that we know from our data has shown that the people are modifying their behavior. And if the, there's, there's a huge increase in anti-Semitism and people ch- are changing behavior, then there's a hesitancy to report it. What we're trying to show with this report is that the problem is so severe mm-hmm. that we all have a role to play and that the community needs to acknowledge when they're experiencing anti-Semitism, that's how we're going to be able to, to come together to confront it uh, altogether. And lastly, uh, Ted, uh, tomorrow marks five years since the horrific murders in Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where 14 students and three staff members uh, were killed at the time you represented that district in Congress. How is the healing process going for the Parkland community? And are you feeling at all hopeful, uh, given the fact that since that happened, there were sweeping changes made in Florida laws, and there have been other changes on the federal level? Well, it's not the it's not the political changes that give me hope. I mean, the healing continues. It goes. It's going to go continue to go on. Uh, I'm in touch with the the family still. I so admire the courage that they show. But if there is something that should give us hope, it's what the young people accomplished in in after Parkland, not just in Parkland but around the country, elevating the issue of gun violence, advocating for change forcing change. We've seen that everywhere around the country. That has to be that has to be a takeaway for us, even as we reflect on, on five years. It's really hard to think that it's been that long. Uh, it was the most impactful moment of my tenure in Congress, and the community continues, yeah. continues to deal with it. All right, Ted Deutsch, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up you next, too, a Jake. school's controversial response after a father says his daughter was bullied and beaten at school and then ultimately died by suicide because of it. Stay with us. Troubling new questions today about how a New Jersey school district handled or 
failed to handle allegations of bullying after the suicide of a 14-year-old girl. Adriana Kutch tragically took her own life after a video showing four other teens assaulting her at school was posted online. Adriana's family shared the disturbing video with CNN. Here's CNN's Bryn Gingras. The video lasts less than a minute. We're showing you edited segments. The attack, vicious, and a warning you may find it disturbing. A New Jersey dad says his daughter was jumped in the halls of her high school. The next day, he says she took her own life. They think it's fun to attack people and make videos and post them. Michael Kutch provided the video to CNN. It shows 14-year-old Adriana walking with her boyfriend when a group approaches the couple first, hitting her with a water bottle several times. She's beaten to the ground as school personnel intervene. She blacks out, and uh, they don't call an ambulance. They take her to the nurse's office. Kutch says he's the one who alerted police to what happened and to the video, which quickly circulated online, prompting a slew of hateful comments. If the school contacted the police and filed a report and conducted an investigation, these videos would have been discovered immediately, Kutch said in a Facebook post after his daughter's death. Adriana was the most happy, beautiful young lady in the world. The superintendent at the time says police were notified and the four attackers were immediately suspended. They've also been criminally charged, one with aggravated assault. The superintendent resigned Saturday. The tragedy now putting a spotlight on the school with protests on campus. And two more parents are coming forward with more allegations of bullying that they say went unchecked. One family suing after a mom says her teenage daughter was bullied at the same high school more than a year ago, providing this video of the incident to CNN. The school basically just dismissed them as some conflict. They didn't offer any protection for the client and didn't call the police, their lawyer claims. The school district denying the allegations in the suit and saying in a recent statement it is reviewing current and past allegations of bullying and will undergo an independent assessment of its anti-bullying policies. These data show a distressing picture. The tragedy comes as the CDC released findings showing teen girls have experienced record high levels of violence, sadness and suicide risk post-COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly one in three high school girls in 2021 seriously considered suicide, up 58 percent from a decade ago. This nationally representative survey of U.S. high school students reveals the changing health risks our young people are facing. And important to note that New Jersey superintendent also resigning after making some very controversial statements after the incident happened at his former school, including blaming the behavior you see in that video, Jake, on a very unlikely target, the pandemic. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass, thanks so much. If you or anyone you know needs help, please call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's 988. Just in, what a new Pentagon memo specifically says about the flying object shot down Saturday over Canada. Stay with us. Welcome to the Late Object Tapper. This hour, we're talking to the man responsible for bringing down my birds. Super Bowl MVP and Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes will join me live. Plus, more than three months since Hurricane Ian ravaged Florida, people are living in tents or their cars still waiting for FEMA to deliver trailers. What is the holdup? And leading this hour, the Pentagon now says the object shot down over Canada on Saturday was a small metallic balloon with a payload tethered to it. These are some of the first details emerging about the three objects shot down by the U.S. military over the weekend. The White House says 
The objects were flying at an altitude that posed a risk to commercial planes. CNN's Phil Manningly is at the White House for us, uh, where there are more questions than answers today. We are laser-focused on confirming their nature and purpose. Three days, three unidentified objects shot down by U.S. fighters. No precedent. Efforts are actively underway right now at all sites to find what is left of those objects so that we can better understand and communicate with the American people what they are. And no shortage of unanswered questions, driving a robust all-of-government response from President Biden. Every element of the government will redouble their efforts to understand and mitigate these events. Recovery efforts underway for the downed objects and critical. They are focused like a laser on figuring out what happened and coming up with sort of a comprehensive analysis of how we deal with this present and future. As even White House allies are raising concerns. In an absence of information, people will fill that gap. But a new cabinet-level task force underscoring a rapid evolution in the U.S. approach. We're actually looking for these with extra vigilance. We're starting to see them in different ways. And uh, President Biden has now made the decision uh, that we are going to not allow those over U.S. territory. With U.S. fighters on three separate occasions using a single missile to take down objects over Alaskan airspace, over Canada's Yukon on Saturday, and over Lake Huron on Sunday. All in the wake of the shootdown of a Chinese spy balloon earlier this month. Officials making clear these three objects are demonstrably different in appearance and capabilities. First of all, um, these are not posing a threat Uh, to the United States or to Americans. You know, these are benign objects uh, from what we can tell. With current and former officials signaling they don't believe they originated in China. Does that mean you think it's China? No, I do not. Or any other state actor, but acknowledging there has been a shift in radar parameters, even as the White House dismissed the idea political pressure has contributed to the rapid escalation in the use of U.S. force. Just to put a sharp point on it, this isn't reactive to the Chinese spy balloon in the sense of there was political pressure, and so we are going to act quickly to take down any objects over our airspace because of the pressure that came from, say, Republicans. This, this was, these were decisions based uh, uh, purely and simply uh, on what was in the best interest of the American people. All as they tamp down any theories tied to extraterrestrial or alien origin. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. And Jake, officials say the recovery process for the Chinese spy balloon is still underway. And as part of that process, they will also be briefing at least one former Trump administration official. Officials offered that, saying that some balloons traversed the United States during the Trump administration while Trump officials were unaware. John Bolton, the former national security advisor under President Trump, will be briefed, according to our colleague Caitlin Collins, on Wednesday over at the Office of Director, uh, Director of National Intelligence. Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. We're getting brand new details now about the object that the U.S. military shot down on Saturday, including that it flew near U.S. sensitive sites before being shot down, according to a Pentagon memo. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now live. Kylie, uh, what else does the memo say? Yeah, so this was a memo sent to lawmakers today. And what it is saying, according to the Pentagon, is that the object that was down over Canada was a small metallic balloon that had a payload 
beneath it. And that was the object uh, that is said to have traveled over sensitive U.S. sites before being down. Of course, that's concerning because we don't know if it had collection surveillance capabilities on board. Now, this memo also said that the object that was down over Lake Huron on Saturday descended slowly into the water after it was shot. This memo uh, according that was gathered by my colleagues Jeremy Herb and Zach Cohen is giving us some of the slightest details about these objects. We also are told by U.S. officials uh, that the object that was down over Alaska, that was the one on Friday, is described as a metallic object. So we now have this metallic descriptor for two out of the three of these objects. But there's still a lot of questions, and the White House is being very clear in just calling these objects because they're saying that they won't have a definitive descriptor until they're able to recover the debris. And Kylie, uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and his Chinese counterpart, they're both expected to be in Munich, Germany this weekend. Is there a chance that they could meet? Well, two top diplomats in one place, there's always a chance, right, Jake? And uh, the State Department spokesperson said today that there is no meeting on the books for the Secretary of State and any top PRP fee- PRC officials at this moment, but they are always assessing opportunities for diplomacy. We also heard from the Deputy Secretary of State today saying that if there were to be a meeting, they would want to do it when the conditions are right. And of course, the Secretary of State canceled his visit to China just recently in recent weeks due to this Chinese surveillance balloon. So the question of conditions being right is still an open one. All right, Kylie Atwood at the U.S. State Department for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. She's the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, also a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, You just heard Kylie Atwood reporting that the unidentified object that was shot down over Canada had passed over U.S. sensitive sites. The spokesman for the National Security Council, John Kirby, today said he could not rule out that these objects were capable of surveillance. How concerned are you that they were engaging in surveillance? Well, we don't know yet, Jake, but I'm very concerned about not assessing unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is why two years ago I worked with Republicans and Democrats to create a new part of the uh, Pentagon that just focuses on all reports of unidentified aerial phenomenon and assesses them scientifically with as much publicly available data and um, intelligence data as well as data from aircraft of military personnel and assess what it is. And In the last two years, they've assessed over 300 unidentified aerial phenomenon. About half of them were determined to be balloons or balloon-like devices. Um, A couple dozen were determined to be drones. Some were just birds or bags in the air and other debris. And then then there's still about 170 that are still not determined. So the assessment is really important. Um, The military has said that these balloons they've shot down, they did not believe to be uh, creating any risk to the United States. But if they are intelligence gathering devices, that's a decision for President Biden to make as to whether they are going to be tolerated. Um, There's spy satellites everywhere, but there's a certain um, area that we don't have a protocol for, which is above commercial airspace to space. And we've not made a determination as a government what we're going to do in that space. And that's something Congress should focus on. We should focus on what should be the protocols in that space. And then in terms of commercial airspace, we've already made that determination. You cannot fly any devices in commercial airspace, which is why the last three devices were taken down immediately, uh, because we already have a a protocol for those. 
And now we just need to gather them up, whether they're um, in Michigan or in Canada or just uh, off Alaska, and to see exactly what kind of devices they are, whether they're benign scientific um, you know, climate gathering devices or whether they are spy devices, and then which country, which adversary are, are using them. So I, I remember when you, you came, I believe you came on the show two years ago when you introduced this. Uh, and uh, we also, I believe, have talked to the individual who used to work at the Defense Intelligence Agency and left uh, because he thought he was focused on this, this unidentified aerial phenomenon. He was focused on this and felt like the leaders in charge were not taking it seriously enough. They thought it was some fringe you know, yeah. extraterrestrial, let's laugh at this kind of thing when Correct. now it's very serious. Uh, do you feel vindicated at all? Well, it's not about me being vindicated. Right. It's all the service members who've reported these for years and been dismissed, derided, disregarded. Their careers have been harmed. Those are the heroes of this moment because men and women have been reporting these sightings from, the, from certainly our military for decades, and they have been met with derision. And so what we made clear in this law is that there can be no stigma associated with reporting and that reporting is now mandatory and that if there is retaliation, that that will be prosecuted. So that's the nature of the law that we passed. And so Arrow, which is the department we created, has some of the smartest minds in our country working on analyzing these, um, the, this data and these videos and radar um, detections as scientifically and as thoroughly as possible to make assessments. And as I said, there's still many that are not assessed yet, and it takes time and resources. So one of the things I'm going to be working on this week is to make sure this is fully funded this year um, and to make sure that this is a priority for the Department of Defense because regardless of how they looked at these things in the past, and I understand these are not threats from a military perspective, but we need to understand what is in our airspace. We need to understand who's spying us on how. Yeah. And we need to know what technology they're using, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, whether it's any other entity, known or unknown. We need to know. And, so, that's, and, and no one should be derided for, for giving reports on it. So uh, one of the things that's interesting is, and look, I understand these last three objects were in the area where commercial uh, airlines fly. And that's the explanation as to why they were shot down. But the uh, Chinese, the suspected Chinese spy balloon was not. But we also heard quite a bit during that week that shooting down the Chinese spy balloon would really pose a serious risk uh, to people, to people. the American people, uh, and, and as well as buildings. Yeah. Is there not also a risk in, in shooting down uh, these, these objects that are in the space where commercial aircraft are? There is, and that's why they chose locations that would minimize that risk over Lake Huron, for example, um, in the Yukon, um, off the coast of Alaska. That's the three places where they shot them down. Interestingly, for the first spy balloon, they had an option to shoot it down immediately just off the coast of Alaska. And one of their reasoning was it's very hard to recover anything from that location, which is now proving to be true for this shot down device over the coast of Alaska. The cold temperatures, the roughness of the sea, um, it makes it very hard to retrieve. And so I think the Biden administration made the right judgments and waited till it was in a safe place. And they could also watch it and see, really get their own information about how does it move, what's it doing, and they mm -hmm. can then take that information as knowledge that's very important for defense. All right, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thank you. Coming up, a look at what is becoming a Ukrainian graveyard for Russian tanks then. A terrifying glimpse at how people are digging through the rubble with their bare hands to try to locate victims of the earthquake as aid never arrives due to, in some cases, politics.
Just 11 days short of the one-year mark of Vladimir Putin's brutal war on Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, NATO Secretary General is warning that we are seeing the start of a new Russian offensive while Ukraine is rapidly draining its ammunition stockpiles. CNN's David McKenzie is in Ukraine for us, where Russia's multiple tactical blunders could signal future problems for Putin's army. Russian units pushing forward again and again, only to be obliterated by Ukrainian artillery, mines and drones. CNN analysis of multiple videos taken over the past fortnight show the Russians lost at least 30 tanks and armored personnel carriers in this area alone. And it seems several hundred soldiers. These units seem without leadership or tactics. As Russian soldiers scramble to take cover, they are mercilessly cut down. Russian tanks and fighting vehicles careen straight into well-placed minefields. At one point, the lifeless body of a Russian soldier gets entangled in tank tracks. These satellite images provided to CNN show the intense bombardment of the tree lines where Russian armor tried and failed to take cover, and a landscape littered with destroyed machines. President Putin's only comment on the fighting here... The Marine infantry are maintaining the operation just fine, he says. This very moment, they are fighting heroically. The UK says that Russians are losing soldiers at their highest rate since the start of the war. Even Russian military bloggers are venting their anger at the tactics and commanders. Only morons attack head-on the same heavily fortified place, writes one. Another demanding the general in charge be put on trial. If you see the tactics the Russians are using, does it look like they know what they're doing in that particular part of the front? It, it really doesn't. Um, it's, it's absolutely absurd that they've committed and they've tried to advance in a mechanized column that makes it a very vulnerable target. Still, it's part of an offensive that NATO's Secretary General thinks is now getting underway in earnest. Because we see what, what, what Russia does now, President Putin do now, is to send in thousands of thousands of more troops, um, accepting a very high rate of casualty, um, taking uh, big losses, uh, but putting pressure on the Ukrainians. In Volodar, Ukraine's defenses are standing firm, even as Russia resorts to using what appear to be thermobaric weapons. But there are growing concerns that Ukrainian units are running critically short of artillery ammunition. The current rate of Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current rate of production. This puts our defense industries under strain. Now, north of that zone, the Russian elite forces and Wagner mercenaries, Jake, seem to be having better luck trying to get inch by inch that territory away from the Ukrainians, but at what cost? And certainly this is not the kind of gains that Putin would have expected almost a year into this conflict. Jake? David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Now on to Turkey and to Syria, where more than 36,000 people have now been declared dead after last week's earthquake. In Syria, a top United Nations official today said that the rescue phase of the response is, quote, coming to a close. CNN's Jamana Karachi went to one of the hardest-hit areas in Syria and found war-scarred hospitals simply do not have enough resources to save everyone. Baby Mohammed takes every little labored breath on his own. No mom, no dad to hold his tiny hand. 
His parents didn't survive the earthquake. The three-month-old was rescued by neighbors who brought him to this ICU. In the room next door, we find Ralia. The 26-year-old will never walk again. The earthquake brought down her family's home and crushed her back. Her stepmom tells us Ralia and her three children were under the rubble for 18 hours. The children survived, but they don't know where they are. In every room of the Syrian hospital, a bittersweet tale of survival. Many more should have been alive today to tell their stories. Doctors say they tried to save them, but didn't have enough supplies to save everyone. The few medical facilities in rebel-held Syria are barely still standing after years of Russian and Syrian regime bombardment that left them ill-equipped to deal with a disaster of this magnitude. We lost a lot of patients because of shortages in medical supplies. If we had them, we could have saved many more lives. This was the scene here last Monday and in other facilities run by the Syrian American Medical Society. This is the biggest disaster we ever had. We dealt with war injuries, but never had to deal with this many casualties at once. The people of this devastated land cried for help, but no help came. Aid to rebel-held northwest Syria is tied in politics and at the mercy of a regime so cruel, even at a time like this. They dig and dig with their bare hands and whatever they can find, desperately trying to reach their loved ones. It's too late for rescues now. They just want to bury their dead. Mohammed is searching for relatives. Expressionless and numb, he tells us 21 of them, including children. Life here feels like one endless cycle of loss and grief. Most have been displaced time and time again by more than a decade of war. They're now homeless once again. We were sleeping under the trees, but it was so cold we came here, Om Sultan tells us. She begs the international community to send them shelters. We just want a tent, she says. I wish we had died with everyone else so we don't go through this, she tells us. We survived only to live this misery and agony. They have nowhere left to run. Millions are trapped in Idlib. It's the last rebel-held territory in Syria. Mohammed says that she and her family fled Aleppo province and came here. She says they escaped the uh, fighter jets and the airstrikes. And she says we came here and the earthquake followed us. She says death follows Syrians everywhere. 700 people lived in this now flattened residential complex. Only a handful survived. Young men from nearby villages came running to help get people out, she tells us. But what can they do? They tried digging. We heard people screaming, get us out, get us out. Then they went quiet. They all died. Two days later, they pulled a little boy and girl. Their dead bodies were still warm. Others made it. After hours of this painstaking rescue, little Ahmed was pulled out alive. The White Helmets, heroes of Syria's war, did all they can to save as many as they can. They urgently appealed for international support. They didn't send anything. They didn't respond. They let the people here down. And now the people here in Syria really know that now they are forgotten. And Jake, a short time ago, the United Nations announcing that the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad has uh, authorized the opening of two additional border crossings for the delivery of UN aid. But this
This is a regime that has been accused of weaponizing aid. This is a regime that has been accused of lying repeatedly uh, to the international community. So the people of northwest Syria will believe this when they see it, Jake. And also, the United Nations has delivered more than 50 truckloads of aid into northwestern Syria since Thursday. But people in that region say that it's too little, too late. Jamana Karache back in Adana, Turkey for us with this absolute brutal Brutal story. Thank you so much. Coming up, what do the Godfather movie and the debt ceiling have in common? I'll tell you next. CNN is learning that what House Republicans call leaders of the so-called five families have met for the first time to see if an agreement can be made among these five families to avoid a catastrophic default on U.S. debt this summer. What are the five families, I hear you ask? I want you to arrange a meeting with the heads of the five families. This war stops now. Except in this case, I'm not talking about the Corleones and the Barzinis. These, These five families are the House Freedom Caucus, and the Main Street Caucus, and the Problem Solvers Caucus, and the Republican Governance Group, and the Republican Study Committee. But we should note, the godfather in these negotiations, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, is not directly involved. Let's discuss. But first of all, can I just say, I've never heard this term before, the five families. Uh, you know, everybody's throwing it. They're yeah. trying to make it a thing. They're, they're, trying, trying, to, they're trying, to, trying to make fetch happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and listen, we shouldn't help them make uh, fetch happen in this uh, regard. Listen, Kevin McCarthy, you know, I think in some ways learned from Boehner. He had a sort of top-down leadership style. The folks in the five families uh, didn't like that. And so now he's going to each one of them to sort of try to cobble together some sort of agreement. Because at this point... Who knows what each of these groups want? Uh, They want to try to get to 218 uh, without all the bickering, a lot of the bickering we obviously saw when he was trying to cobble together 218 to become speaker. So you worked uh, with House Republicans for for some time. Uh, Do you think this is a smart approach, trying to get the five families on board? And was was this a thing? Did you ever hear this before? I'm unfamiliar with the term. Yeah, I'm definitely trying to make fetch happen. But I think this is a smart approach by Speaker McCarthy. I also think it's really smart who he tapped to lead the negotiations, which is a lesser-known congressman, um, Garrett Graves from Louisiana. Actually, he's my former boss, so I'm a little biased. But But you think he's smart and good? Yes, he is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. And I think that a lot of— about among the five families. And among the five families, too. I think he represents, you know, the Deep South, and so he understands conservative politics, but he definitely is known to be a little bit more moderate, and so he is a good um, person to be leading these negotiations. He's going to have his hands full because they're going to try have to find a through line that actually connects the five families with this broader sense of We're making government. it happen. I know. We, no, should we, we are, are, are making it happen five, right here. We are the problem. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. Hey, the challenge with the through line right now is, is trying to find some way to connect these disparate elements of the Republican Party that have made a majority coalition and prove that it can be a governing coalition when clearly there are elements that believe you should just burn down the administrative state. And I'm, right. I'm using Bannon's words here, right? That's the MAGA wing of the party. There's also elements um, that believe you should be tying budget to debt limit, two fundamentally different financial instruments, uh, but it works in the sense of public messaging. So what we see coming out of this conversation will help us understand how Republicans plan to govern going forward. And and I should say, Jackie, uh, a lot of Democrats see this Republican strategy as destined to fail. Quote, 
The White House and Senate Democrats have calculated that Speaker Kevin McCarthy won't have enough votes to raise the national borrowing limit and will end up caving to their demands, Democrats' demand, to avoid a first-ever debt default with no strings attached or any conditions whatsoever. And and it's true that some moderate Republicans in the Problem Solvers and Main Street Caucus uh, have have talked about working with Democrats to to bring a a bill on the floor using a discharge petition. Um, But right now they're all on the record saying no. That right. there have to be spending cuts, all including the moderate Republicans. There have to be spending cuts with the debt ceiling raise. I think we're seeing a little bit of wish casting coming from the Democrats on this. They're hoping to manifest that that's the that's the end result here. But you can't call you can't uh, make that gamble if you're them at this point, because, as you said, you have the moderate Republicans who are saying that they're not going to vote for this if there's not spending cuts. And let's be honest, when John Boehner initially was um, in the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations, he was able to get some spending cuts that were thought to be a, a, a large um, at the time. Maybe in hindsight, Republicans don't think so. But uh, and that is a negotiating position, right? They're not going to say, oh, no, if it gets bad, we're going to go forward. We have to wait and see, because I think of what we've seen from this Republican conference at this point, they are nothing if not unpredictable. So let's uh, change subjects, if we can, to a different struggle. The college board engaged with a, in a war of words with the state of Florida and its Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, over its preliminary decision, the Florida uh, preliminary decision, to reject a course on uh, AP African-American studies unless changes were made. In a statement, the college board says Florida is attempting to claim a political victory by taking credit retroactively for changes we ourselves made, but they never suggested to us. We have made the mistake of treating the Florida Department of Education with the courtesy we always accord to an education agency, but they have instead exploited this courtesy for their political agenda, unquote. That prompted this response earlier today from Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. The college board was the one that, in a black studies course, put queer theory in. Not us. They did that. They were the ones that put in intersectionality. They put in other types of neo-Marxism into the proposed syllabus. And, man, this is the proposed course. So our Department of Education looked at that and said, in Florida, we do education, not indoctrination. And so that runs afoul of our standards. One of the other things he said in, the, in those remarks, uh, Niamaliko, was that he's sick of, uh, of politicians allowing fear of being called names into them avoiding fights like this. I think he was using talking about the word racist. Right, right, right. Um, listen, I think no matter what, DeSantis was going to try to turn this into some sort of political victory. He's you know, famous for saying Florida is the state where woke comes to die. I'm not really sure uh, what that means. Uh, listen, I have been saying that I think the college board in this AP studies course, I think it's a great course the way it ended up being. Um, I think classrooms are dynamic places that queer theory will probably come up. Intersectionality will uh, probably come up in the these courses. Kimberly Crenshaw is very important to black studies. It's a very wide-ranging course from, uh, you know, ancient Africa to Afrofuturism. And and so, listen, I think for DeSantis, when you think about a primary, this is probably good for him. But when you think about this more broadly, white parents want their kids to learn about black studies. Queer theory is certainly within the sort of framework of black studies. If you think about uh, the fact that folks who put on the civil rights marches, a lot of those folks uh, were actually gay. Like James Baldwin. Baldwin. Uh, And so, you know, listen, I think it works 
to appoint for DeSantis when he's thinking about trying to uh, work his way through a primary uh, with fights against Kimberly Crenshaw and Mickey Mouse. But I think more broadly, I don't know that it's going to re- really He's sit. focused on this very elite college program, too. Only a million students around the country even take AP courses, let alone this new pilot, smaller AP Black History course. And I will say, I would have loved to take this class back in high school because we had American history in which slavery was barely discussed. And that's the broader challenge we're seeing. And DeSantis has really wrapped his hands around the K-12 public education system and using name-calling to his advantage, calling it racist or woke theory, to even talk about the roots of American history. And he's taken an autocratic approach to it. Education is supposed to be locally managed, and he's Mm. managed to show an example of how a state can take over these local issues and now potentially show a path for how the federal government can do that as well. You think this is a winner for him? Um, I think it's a winner for him in Florida, which we've seen become increasingly red. But on the national stage, I don't know if it's going to play as well if he ends up entering the 2024 race. DeSantis seems to have largely built his brand around being a culture warrior and picking these types of battles. But I don't think that's really going to move the needle with moderates and independents nationwide, which is what he would need if he gets into the presidential campaign. Although the primaries come first, of course, thanks to one and all. He is the man behind the amazing second half comeback to defeat my beloved Philadelphia Eagles. I will ask Super Bowl MVP and Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes how he did it and why, why he did it. That's next. In our sports lead, while it may not have been the outcome that fans of the Philadelphia Eagles, such as, oh, I don't know me, had wanted, the Kansas City Chiefs are the undisputed this year NFL Super Bowl champions, pulling off a remarkable and impressive comeback to take down the Birds 38 to 35. Who better to talk about this win and run by face in it than the now two-time Super Bowl champion and two-time MVP himself, Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Patrick, congratulations. An unbelievable game. Uh, How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. It's been a roller coaster, uh, and I I appreciate it. Sorry I made you have a little bit of a rough night, but uh, we had a great time. It was a great game, and uh, we're at Disneyland now. So going into halftime, I have to ask you, going into halftime, you're down by 10. Then you come back out. And you just obliterated Philly's defense. What happened in that room? Did you have conversations? Did you crack the code of Gannon's zone defense? Did Bienemy tell you to stack the receivers, run corn dog? We're going. We can do it this way. I mean, was it like a, a technical discussion? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of everything. Uh, I mean, first off, we had great great halftime adjustments by the coaches, uh, Coach Bienemy and Coach Reed. Um, I think uh, some guys stepped up and talked in the locker room and just said, hey, let's just leave it all on the field and see what happens at the end of 30 minutes. And uh, uh, the guys responded. Um, Everybody stepped up, offensive line, everybody stepped up, and uh, were able to find a way to win against a great football team. So the Eagles were known for sacking quarterbacks. How surprised were you to not even be sacked once last night? I mean, uh, with all respect to the Eagles and our D-line, I wasn't that surprised. I mean, um, our offensive line has been great all year. I was one of the uh, least sacked quarterbacks in the entire NFL all season long, and I think uh, with, with uh, all the other stuff going on, people forgot that. They forgot how great our offensive line was, and uh, they, were, they accepted the challenge. We knew that was a great, great defensive line that we were facing, an all-time great defensive line, and they all, uh, our offensive line accepted that challenge, and we were able to get the ball to my hands and get it to the playmakers and make plays. 
I'll never be allowed back into Philadelphia if I don't ask you what you thought about that holding call against James Bradbury, who, who acknowledges he did tug Smith-Schuster's jersey, but he thought that the refs would let it slide. What did you think about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was throwing it to the, the spot where I thought Juju was going to be at, and I knew there was a reason that he wasn't uh, as close as he was uh, when I threw it. I, I couldn't see exactly. I just knew when he, we ran that kind of double move route that he wasn't going to that he wasn't where he usually is at. And then when you see it on film, man, I mean, he, he tugged him and kind of forced him out of the direction of where he wanted to throw the ball. And so at the end of the day, you just got to play football and the rest and make their calls uh, the best that they can do and their best of their ability. And it, and it went our way on that call where, where a couple other ones, it might have went the other way. You were visibly in pain at the end of the first half after tweaking your already injured ankle. And you said you didn't receive a painkilling injection for your ankle. It was heavily taped. I also wonder how much the extra 15 minutes uh, of Super Bowl halftime helped, and also how much adrenaline might have played a, a role, given we know that human beings are capable of incredible physical feats because of their own adrenaline. Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think that rest definitely helped it. I was able to kind of do some mobility stuff back in that locker room and get the tape the way that I wanted it to, to get in that second half. And then... Um, whenever you get back out there, you just gotta let the adrenaline and your your mental, your mental, your your mind really just take over. You gotta do, do leave it all in the football field, and uh, we got a long off season now where we can go out there and let it rest up and get to 100% by next year. But uh, I was gonna do whatever I could to be what I needed to, to do what I needed to do on that football field. Well, it was incredible. Um, Super Bowl 57 was memorable and historic, and an incredible game for a lot of reasons. One of them is the fact that this is the first time in the history of the NFL that both teams starting quarterbacks were black. Um, there's a lot of that that's just rooted in some really bad unfairness uh, in the NFL history. But beyond that, what did it mean to you? And did you and Jalen Hurts, the quarterback for the Eagles, did you talk about it at all? Yeah, I mean, it was talked about for sure. I mean, it, it's, it, was a, it was a special moment. And I was glad that the game went the way it went, even though it made, it a, made me a little nervous there at the end. Um, but uh, Jalen played his tail off, man. All respect to him, um, and it showed that uh, that the, the black quarterback, like it's all like we've always been able to do, can go out there and have success on the, on the world stage in the biggest game of them all. And uh, we're standing on shoulders of Doug Williams, Warren Moon, Shaq Harris, all these greats, um, and the guys that didn't get the chances uh, that gave us this platform. And hopefully, we can inspire some kids uh, to follow their dream and be a quarterback in the future. Whenever we're sitting on the couch watching the Super Bowl, you talk about faith a lot. And I'm wondering, what's the best way you think your faith plays a role in your game? Is it, is it bringing you a piece? Does it bring you a perspective? Um, how does it help you? Yeah, it's definitely perspective, I think, to me. Um, we, uh, we, I, I do a lot about just thinking about going out there and playing to glorify him, man. It's not, a, it's not about winning and losing, even though it is in our world. But it's to go out there and leave everything I have on the field to show that I'm glorifying him. Um, and uh, it gives me a perspective of leaving everything out there and knowing I'm doing it for the right reason. And uh, hopefully that's enough to win football games. And uh, for me, it's been enough so far. And hopefully I can continue to do that the rest of my career. All right. Kansas City Chiefs superstar Patrick Mahomes, congratulations. I'll see you in Kansas City in June when we go to the Big Slick fundraiser for Children's Mercy Hospital. Uh, I appreciate it. You can come to the parade Wednesday, too, if you want to. I know Paul's trying to get out there. It's okay. I'll let Paul represent me. It's okay. I appreciate it. But thank you so much. (laughs) Enjoy Disneyland.
Coming up, more than four months after Hurricane Ian, thousands of Floridians are still waiting for FEMA to provide trailers. What is taking so long? Now for our buried lead. These are stories that we believe deserve a lot more attention than they're getting. It has been more than four months since Hurricane Ian devastated Florida. And as CNN's Gabe Cohen shows us, some survivors are still living in tents and cars and wrecked homes waiting for the help that President Biden and FEMA promised. We're trying to get it cleaned out. This was Lima Call's home, ravaged by Hurricane Ian in September. This is where her family lives now. The 86-year-old and her husband are in an old RV on their property. Her daughters are in one tent, her grandkids in another. At my age, what am I going to do? She's still waiting for her insurance payout, but they spent a month in their cars. So this, she says, feels like heaven. I thank God for what you get. And I do everything. More than four months after Hurricane Ian pounded southwest Florida, many homeowners here are still homeless, some living in difficult or even dangerous conditions. Is completely unsettled. Nicole Williams moved back into her damaged home last month after she says her rental assistance ran out. The mold situation in there is terrible. I can barely breathe. But you're still staying here. I don't have a choice. It's here on the street. You can see we got a lot of stuff in there still. But Bobby Mann and his wife have been sleeping in their car. Our bed. Or inside their hollowed house. It breaks you and physically, emotionally, you're drained, you're exhausted. And 73-year-old Sonny Reeves, a retired Marine living in this RV, is frustrated by this spray paint on his driveway. Not knowing what's going on. It means he's been approved by FEMA for a free temporary trailer, but he says he's been waiting for it since October. I don't know, maybe I'm not calling the right person. In fact, all of the survivors we interviewed, few of whom had insurance, told us they've been approved by FEMA for temporary housing units, but they have no idea when they're coming. It's become a heated issue in this area. While FEMA has provided nearly $1 billion in individual assistance, they're behind on distributing housing units. Nearly 3,000 households have been approved for direct housing. But as of last week, FEMA says only 225 had received it. Where's the sense of urgency? Why is nobody helping these people? Brian Hammond is chairman of the Lee County Board of Commissioners, an elected Republican. He blames federal red tape. For example, it took until January for FEMA to bypass a policy that says they can't put trailers in a flood zone. Most of these survivors live in one. They actually made the system too big and too cumbersome to get through to respond to a disaster. But FEMA defends their process. Do you think more needs to be done to cut red tape to be able to deliver these trailers now? We don't have any issues with red tape at the moment. Keith Denning is one of the FEMA officials leading this recovery. What some call red tape, he calls federal regulation. We're working faster. We're ramping up the direct housing operation. Frustrating. We're so frustrated. But Roseanne and Paula, two widowed sisters, have had this FEMA trailer on their property for more than a month, and they're still locked out of it because the water still isn't hooked up. And until it passes inspection, they're not allowed inside. FEMA's rules. So they're still living with little power, hauling water from their neighbor's house to boil for showers. At this point, what's the timeline to get the rest of these delivered? We're looking at on certain sites, private sites, commercial sites, that would be commercial parks, sometime in the middle of March, have all of those, all of those needs filled. 
Now, FEMA stresses they have provided assistance for rent and repairs to tens of thousands of households. And since that flood zone rule change last month, they say far more of those housing units are going out. But, Jake, you saw still so many people there are struggling, and a lot of them want to know when their support may be arriving. Yeah, I want to know, too. Gabe Cohen, excellent report. Thank you so much. You can follow me. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper, you can tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room after this quick break. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 